In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. So tonight we're going to be having a bit of a chat about vegetarian and veganism. But before we get to it, I wanted to say thanks for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, rate us on iTunes. And also to let you know that we are now on Twitter. I think we have a total of one post and two followers. We're very excited. One of them is me. Yes, that's right. Shh. (laughs) They'll never know. (laughs) There's lots of hunters out there. (laughs) There are not. (laughs) So, do you want to talk us through how we ended up here? So, it kind of came about because in the last part we were talking about handedness at, at one point and it got me thinking about how I'm always interested in everyday differences in population mm-hmm. that are sort of psychological um, or have a psychological component. Yep. So, handedness is a classic one. And so, and that kind of got me thinking about suddenly vegetarianism and what we want to do with this pod is not to kind of have a discussion about you know whether vegetarianism is good or not or veganism is good or not we're quite happy to leave that discussion to somebody else what we're interested in is i guess some of the psychological uh yeah is that what you say around vegetarianism so because i think it's quite an interesting phenomena in western culture and there's a lot of sort of ins and outs around it. And really, like we've chosen six articles that we're going to try and get through today. We could have had 10, I reckon, easily. Yeah, so there's a lot There's a lot out there. What was your experience of like of searching for this stuff? It was pretty varied. Yeah. Like it, it ranged from just sort of behavioral stuff through to attitudes, through to relationships, all sorts of Yeah, things. and a lot of sort of ethics stuff. And we, yeah. we, I... I purposely steer clear of that, mm. mainly because I don't really know what I'm talking about if I start talking. <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, full disclosure: like, I'm not. I'm a total omnivore. Mm. Um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I eat meat. I don't eat meat frequently. Yeah, like I mean, once every couple of weeks. Really? Is that yeah. Little? Yeah. 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 So I think most most days mm. I'd be eating meat. Yeah. Yeah, I eat it when I'm out of the house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And sort of like preparing for the pot, I sort of think the classic omnivore thing, which is like, oh, well, what would I cook if I had a vegetarian come over? Mm. The only thing I can think of is because I've been cooking them lately for the kids is zucchini fritters. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds about right. What's your, what's your go-to vegetarian meal? Uh, like a vegetarian stir fry, probably. Mm. Green curry with sweet potato, something like that. You use a sweet potato in a green curry? Mm. It's really good. If you caramelize it yeah, first. Right. Okay. I will look forward to having dinner at your house. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you want to start us off? Sure. So, the first article I found is called Vegans Report Less Stress and Anxiety Than Omnivores by Bezold and colleagues in Nutritional Neuroscience in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, this article starts off by talking about how most of the prior research has been quite behavioral when comparing vegans to vegetarians, to omnivores. So things like vegans exercising more than omnivores or vegans having a higher 
diet quality than omnivores in terms of the range of nutrients and the quality of those nutrients, things like that. But they also describe the flip side of that, that there's a lot of concerns that they're missing out on particular nutrients. Mm. So missing out on things like calcium and also missing out on vitamins that are related to brain functioning. So vitamin B12, vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids. When they've looked at mental health of vegetarians, there's been mixed results with some studies finding poorer, some finding better than omnivores. But there's been no previous research on mental health of vegans at the point when this was published. So their idea was to explore mood and lifestyle factors that impact mood in vegans, vegetarians and omnivores. Yeah, right. In which country? Uh, In the US. So I'm assuming that everyone listening knows the difference between vegans, vegetarians. Essentially, vegans don't eat anything that's derived from any animal product. So no eggs, milk, dairy of any kind, as well as no meat. Yeah, and and they wouldn't eat honey. No. Yeah, whereas vegetarians will eat things that are produced by animals like dairy, but won't eat the animal itself. Yeah. So meat. Yeah, and omnivores, open flavor. <laughs> yeah, and but also in some of the studies, you will get you will get people who say they're vegetarian but will eat say white meat, like yeah. fish or chicken it's or like something like that. Pescatarian. Yeah, pescatarian. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there is a there is a, a range of people. Whether there's actually meaningful differences is is something that's kind of interesting to think about. Absolutely. So this study was an online survey and it was promoted to the vegan community. So through sort of websites, Facebook pages, that sort of thing. And people were eligible if they were aged 25 to 60 years and if they were healthy. So they had no debilitating chronic illness. There were 620 full surveys completed and just over 80% were female and about a third were omnivores 17% were vegetarians and 44.7% were vegans. Wow. Yeah. Which is quite large because the big samples of national samples I looked at, veganism is extremely low. Like vegetarianism was about 5%. Yeah. Veganism was like less than 1%. or something. Absolutely. Which probably is by targeting the vegan community online, they were able to grab a bigger sample. Uh, So they collected demographics, people's self-report of their BMI, so their body mass index, self-report of weekly activity levels, uh, a range of lifestyle questions, so things about alcohol, smoking, work hours, sleep, amount of hours spent outdoors, their perceived social support, they did the DAS21, and then they were asked diet questions, so things around daily intake of fruit, veggies, sugar, omega-3 plant foods, and vitamin D foods Mm -hmm. and then they to classify people into vegan vegetarian and omnivore they asked them which of the following foods do you include in your diet at least monthly and sort of had a tick tick the box and it included various types of meat dairy eggs that sort of thing Uh, so rather than asking someone to classify themselves was based on behavior behavior yeah yeah they found that age was negatively related to all of the das scores so the, de- the so, DAS is a depression, anxiety and stress scale 21. Yeah, yeah. And you can actually Google that and do it on yourself. Yeah. If you score high, go see your GP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Freely available, breaks it down into those three categories. Yeah. Yeah. So as people got older, their amount of negative emotion decreased. Oh, that's a pretty standard finding, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They found that a vegan diet was negatively correlated to anxiety and stress subscales. 
and that vegans scored lower on these two scales compared to vegetarians and omnivores. Yeah, right. So they found gender effects where males were higher in anxiety in the vegetarian and omnivore groups and females were higher in stress. So they were able to split it into two. So for males, anxiety was correlated with an omnivore diet, lower fruits and veggies, BMI, fewer hours outdoors and younger age. But there was no significant relationship between anxiety and dietary choice for females. For females with stress, uh, it was related to having an omnivore diet, the amount of sweet foods eaten daily, Mm. dieting, reduced social support and younger age. So it seemed to the general score was then split into accounted for by those gender effects. Yeah, right. uh, so then they compared things to a prior pilot study that they conducted with paper surveys using the same questions at a vegan festival and found similar results. So they sort of mushed everything together and everything stayed significant that was significant before. So I thought that maybe to wrap up the results discussion it might be useful to talk about the differences between groups because i kind of feel like that might have accounted for some of what was going on yeah so um they seem to be fairly uneven sized groups yeah so the vegans were older yeah they exercised more they were outdoors more and they used multivitamins more and they also ate more fruit more vegetables Less sweet food, more vitamin D food, more omega-3 plant-based foods than mm. the other two groups. So in general, they had kind of healthier lifestyles yeah. and were eating the things that are associated with brain health, which yeah. was the focus of this Yeah, and also like, I mean, I, mean, I mean, I was, I'd be thinking exercise could definitely account for yeah. a large, you know, if, if you have someone who clinically who is got an anxiety problem yep. or a mood problem and you get them to exercise yeah leave the house yeah leave the house but yeah getting them to exercise on a regular basis like three four times a week yeah that mood problem will diminish might not go away but uh, yeah yeah it can have a big impact so i kind of i wonder if it's about a whole bunch of things that go with veganism veganism yeah whether that's part of it. The only thing that was, I guess, in the reverse direction was that they had less social support than omnivores. But otherwise, everything else was things that support you know, general well, psychological well-being. Yeah, so eating well, exercising. Like, well, I mean, what do the authors say about what, what's the cause? Yeah, they're wondering whether that's part of it. And that, you know, previous research, because it's just looked at the food intake, you know, people have been concerned about sort of dietary deficiencies and that sort of thing. But in actual fact, because people are focused on their diet and maintaining that diet, they're doing more to kind of support themselves in other ways. Yeah, and that, that it's well, a lifestyle choice yeah, rather than just a... Yeah, because yeah, I think there's a lot of effort mm. that goes into a vegan lifestyle. I mean, not yeah. being vegan, I, don't, I wouldn't have first-hand experience. So, But certainly from the outside, it looks like there's a lot of thought about yeah. what actually goes on rather than say you know like today i was out and i just went and grabbed something yeah and without any thought about and i think as well like one of the other studies that i've got talks a bit about what motivates people to be vegan or vegetarian or whatever and vegans are often more motivated by ethical or kind of big picture motivations mm. more so than internal personal things so yeah. i feel like it's an entire 
it's a focus on a lifestyle and a perspective on the world. So perhaps that makes makes a bit of sense. It'd be interesting if you could get like a vegan sample and then do a matched control study. So that would be like yeah. So a matched control study is where you try and you get a sample of interest, and then you would try and match a, a comparison sample. So like an omnivore sample, but on as many similar characteristics. Yeah. So like. You know, the same same number of women, same number, about the same age, that yeah. kind of stuff. And that would, so you're kind of trying to compare apples with apples. Yeah, rather than, yeah. So Because there's quite a lot of differences between the groups. I mean, I mean uh, yeah. We're extrapolating, but. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting idea and it kind of makes you wonder about what is the mechanism involved yeah. in that. I mean, the other two groups were far less distinct from one another vegans certainly sat separately mm. like the only thing that separated the omnivores was that was that they drink more alcohol <laughs> than the other two groups do they potentially could account for some of it like yeah so, absolutely do they do a multivariate or anything no no and the vegetarians were less likely to be married less likely to do yoga or meditation and less likely to have dieted in the last year than the other two groups yeah it sort of feels like the the key variables of focus really separated out the vegans from the rest. Mm, interesting. So the article I'm going to go for to start off my trilogy is called Increased Prevalence of Vegetarianism Among Women with Eating Pathology. It's by Zeromsky and colleagues, and it was published in Eating Behaviours in 2015. So they talk about that there's a link between vegetarianism and disordered eating attitudes and behaviour. Mm-hmm. So when they talk about disordered eating behaviours, that, that's sort of in terms of like people who diet a lot or yeah. binge or purge or overly exercise or things like that. So it's sort of more of a clinical term rather than a pejorative term. Yeah. Well, it does sound pejorative. There, there is some suggestion that vegetarianism may mask the presence of eating pathology mm-hmm. and the prevalence of vegetarianism amongst those with, an eat, with eating disorder symptoms is understudied and with most of the research having been done on a ve- vegetarian sample. Yeah. Right? And so what they... What they wanted to examine was the prevalence of vegetarianism within three female samples with varying severity of eating disorder mm-hmm. symptoms. So a non-clinical group, so it's really like a no eating disorder symptoms. A subclinical group, so someone who might have some eating disorder symptoms but doesn't have full-blown eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And a clinical sample, so a group of women who have an eating disorder. So and when I'm talking about women, the research overwhelmingly shows that it's women who suffer from eating disorders. Mm. Men do on extremely rare occasions. Yeah. Like sort of like one in a hundred or something. Yeah. Like it, it's really, I mean, I can't think of the numbers. Yeah, it's about one or two percent, I think. Yeah, like it's really, yeah. so all the literature is all about women and it's, which is quite interesting, um, which maybe we should do a pot on eating disorders. Mm. So their theory is that thinking that there's a higher rates of vegetarianism amongst the clinical sample. Mm-hmm. And so essentially you'd say from non-clinical, subclinical to clinical at increase. Yeah. So the study and pet peeve, they described the sample in the method section. <laughs> That's per usual. Uh, but actually, they were, they were jamming a lot of information very quickly, so I'll, I'll give them a pass this time. The um, So they had two samples. So the first was female undergraduates in uh, the southern eastern United States, and they split them into a non-clinical group, which was 73 people, and subclinical group, which was 136. Um, the non-clinical group 
was if they denied any lifetime history of eating pathology mm-hmm. and subclinical was if they endorsed any eating pathology. So very quickly, these was like fasting, binge eating, self self-induced vomiting, laxative use, excessive exercise in the past 28 days. And then sample two, they had 69 patients, all female, in a center having residential treatment. 33% of those had anorexia nervosa. So that is when uh, women are extremely thin and underweight. And, and restricting. Restricting, you, you, typically. Bulimia nervosa, 25%. So that's the classic kind of binge and purge yeah. kind of cycle. And then 37% or 38% where it was classified as eating disorder, not otherwise specified. So if you didn't fall into those two categories. Yeah. And that would include people who had the new binge eating disorder yeah. diagnosis. Age groups of the non-clinical and subclinical was about... 19 years and the clinical was a bit older, it was about 26 years old. Mm-hmm. So both groups completed a range of questionnaires, any sort of examination questionnaires, that's about restraint, weight concern, shape concern, eating concern, as well as specific behaviours, lifetime disorder eating items, BMI, and a questionnaire about vegetarianism. So as you'd expect with the results, the clinical group had the highest disordered eating symptoms except for excessive exercise, which didn't seem to differ between the clinical and subclinical mm. groups. And the BMI, as you'd expect, was lowest in the clinical group. Subclinical and the non-clinical groups didn't differ in terms of BMI. Mm-hmm. So vegetarianism across the sample. So generally, the non-clinical group ate a wider variety of foods compared to the other groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that would kind of fit, right? Yeah, like absolutely. If you've got a group of individuals who... Uh, restricting would make sense they're having less. So the prevalence of self-identified lifetime vegetarianism was lowest in the non-clinical group, it was about 6.8%. Mm-hmm. It was highest in the clinical group, so about 34.8%. The subclinical group was in between, it was 17.6%. They had like a self-identified vegetarianism or derived from a scale, like yep. in the way that you were talking about. So the general ten was that non-clinical and subclinical groups were more likely to be non-vegetarian than the clinical group. Makes sense. Yeah. So the numbers, so like in the clinical, 11% in the clinical group versus 2.7 and 2.2 for the non-clinical and subclinical respectively, self-identified as vegetarian. Currently. Uh, I didn't write it down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Similar numbers for the derived. So non-clinical 2.7, subclinical 4.4, in clinical 29%, which is quite quite a clear Pattern. Yeah. And clinical were more likely to be lacto-ovo vegetarian. So that's mm-hmm. no meat but dairy and eggs. They yeah. do eat. And that was 17% versus about 3%. So, And clinical was more likely to be vegan. Mm-hmm. So 8.7 versus 0%. Wow. Yeah. And so if you've ever had any experience with uh, an eating disorder or someone with an eating disorder, it's a very, very disabling condition. Yeah. So which kind of runs very much in contrast to what absolutely that previous study that you were talking about so i mean it's so it's i would say it's quite complicated so what was and it, it probably reflects the sort of difference in motivations and yes. in underlying kind of psychological facets well that's a good segue because i was about to say that like the reasons for being vegetarian current or lifetime were similar across groups hmm. right? so ethical reasons dislike of meat or diet, dairy and wanting a healthy diet with a the main reasons yeah. and there was no sort of indication that there was anything different. They also looked at 
reasons participants stated for why they stopped being vegetarian. Mm-hmm. This is frequently related to disordered eating within the clinical sample. Mm. So 43.8% of the clinical group who identified as former vegetarians indicated that stopping being a vegetarian was was related to an eating disorder. So essentially, the example I use is starting treatment for an eating disorder. Stop them from being vegetarian. Okay, yeah. So because they were in, the treatment involves being encouraged to eat, yep. they then stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. they expanded the amount of things that they're able to yeah, eat. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, eating so rather than the development of the eating disorder, but the treatment of the eating disorder was related to stopping. Yeah. 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 Right. Whereas this is this interesting nexus between starting becoming a vegetarian or a vegan and is this masking eating disorder symptoms? Yeah. Or is it do you start doing that and then fall into an eating disorder? It's kind of this uh, unknown. Mm. So the results are consistent with past research showing that highest degree of eating pathology also had the highest lifetime of self-identified and current vegetarianism. Mm -hmm. They noted that the reasons were to do with like health, ethics, dislike of food types, but and women were unlikely to endorse reasons for choosing vegetarianism related to disordered eating. Mm -hmm. So no one sort of said that, even though... It was a quite clear relationship between vegetarianism and the severity of eating pathology. And like I was chatting to a friend about this topic and she said, oh, you know, she was vegetarian for a while and she was saying that, you know, going to vegetarian does rule out a lot of fast food. Yeah. Like it can can be quite helpful if you are losing weight. Mm. You know, and they were sort of saying, well, you know, maybe people endorse motivations not associated with disordered eating, but it vegetarian in itself may be functionally related to disordered eating and this discrepancy between motivation and behavior is similar to orthorexia yeah which is an obsession about healthy eating that may lead to serious eating pathology yeah which is something that's reasonably new literature wise yeah i'd not come across that word before so it sort of ties into that whole movement of you know fitspiration kind of instagram posts and things and looking at images of people who uh, in theory, healthy and inspiring people to lose weight, get fit, whatnot. But it's closely tied to another group, which is called thin inspiration, which is about being as thin as possible. Yeah. And so people who tend to look at those images look at look at both, yeah. and then compare themselves often negatively to those those things. Yeah. Yeah, and that sort of helps feed into that all of those beliefs and things that underlie becoming eating disordered mm. i mean it's, i mean maybe it speaks to my ad, my first job was in addictions mm. like drug and alcohol and you know often the way that you understand a drug and alcohol problem is like it's interesting to understand how it started mm. and how it kind of took hold like you don't yeah. become an alcoholic overnight yeah and like i sort of have a similar theory around eating disorders absolutely because uh, like it's really socially endorsed to yeah. Restrict what you're eating, lose weight. In Western society, yeah. the emphasis is on women in particular. Yeah. Losing weight, being thin. Yeah, and yeah. this control and attractiveness and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And eating disorder, eating disorders, the kind of rule of thumb you have is there's like a high level of perfectionism mm. and control and desire for control. Yeah. And that, like, so that manifests itself in eating, eating disordered pathology or particular types of eating disorder pathology. Mm. And uh, and so you can sort of see how vegetarianism would 
you know, it's like a way of controlling stuff. Yeah. And so if you then start doing that, you know, you can see how you could kind of go, oh, there's benefits to it. Or alternatively, it could be that you're seeking out control and that's an easy way to do that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And they sort of suggest where the women study perhaps intended on adjusting the diets for health reasons, but behavior was still related to eating pathology. Sort of, again, just harping on what I've been saying, but finished by saying that vegetarianism may be an important mark for disordered eating or the de- developing more disordered eating. They also had this interesting note of suggesting that revision back to vegetarianism after treatment for an eating disorder mm-hmm. might be a you know a warning sign, warrant yeah. clinical attention, which I mm. thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Like that, that has good face validity, mm. I would suggest. And they finish off with that, does vegetarianism serve as a way to disguise food restriction during the early stages of an eating disorder? Or does experience with vegetarianism increase vulnerability for the development of eating disorders in vulnerable individuals? Mm. So really nice type study. Yeah, really good. Mm. So the next one I've got is about attitudes and perceptions of other non-meat eating groups. So it's called Horizontal Hostility Among Non-Meat Eaters by Hank Rothgerber in PLOS 1 in 2014. So this article speaks about how vegetarian is reasonably infrequent, as we've spoken about. So in the US, it's about 3%. And that in Western countries, it ranges from under 2% to 9%. Guess which country is under 2% just as a... Oh, I'm going to go like a Scandinavian country. Yep, and France. And France. (laughs) Germany's the highest. Germany. Which surprised me because, you know. Well, they love the sausage. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what really got me. But, yeah. And within vegetarianism or any sort of non-meat eating groups, there are a whole bunch of different subgroups. And there hasn't been so far any research into how each of these groups perceive one another. And so this author kind of talks about how that it's important for these subgroups to have consistency if they want to influence the majority. Mm. So if they want more people to be vegetarian or vegan or whatever, for ethical reasons in particular, then you kind of need to have a cohesive message. You sort of need to be able to bond together as one. But does that actually happen? So uh, he speaks about how that the inconsistencies in how people identify are often based on motivations for not eating meat, so whether it's about health or ethical reasons, things like that. And so he wanted to compare the perceptions of health vegetarians, ethical vegetarians and vegans to one another. So this research draws on a theory that's been used with other minority groups called horizontal hostility. Mm -hmm. Basically, this means that between minority groups, there's certain degrees of similarity and distinctiveness. And that the direction of similarity appears to moderate the relationship that groups have with one another. So the focus is whether the other group is more or less distinct from the majority. Yeah. So that you view, say your minority group A views minority group B less favorably if they've got more in common with the majority than than minority group A does. They also don't like it if it's, too close to them. Yeah. So if minority group A and B are too similar, yeah. then there's sort of a threat to the in-group yeah, right. feeling. So yeah. you kind of, for optimum minority group kind of intermingling, yeah. you want to have a midway yeah. between. So they're wondering whether if you place non-meat eating along a continuum mm. in sort of, I suppose, extremity of, of values, yeah. whether you end up with a similar thing. So if you go from vegan to 
ethical vegetarian to health vegetarian to omnivore. Whether there's conflict between the two. Exactly. So they did an online study with 431 participants. 80% were from the US and about the same were female. So they had two versions of the survey. One was the high mainstream salience group. So respondents were asked to evaluate omnivores and then evaluate the three non-meat-eating groups. The other one was low salience, and so they only evaluated the three non-meat-eating groups. So the idea was that by mentioning the omnivores, you would heighten that comparison to the mainstream. Measures, they asked for people's self-identified diet. Uh, They also asked for diet motivations, so health, ethical, or health and ethical together. And the people who uh, said that it was health and ethical were lumped in with the health group because they've found in previous research that people who have dual motivations are more similar to the ones who choose to be vegan or vegetarian for health reasons than ethically. So health is a driving Driving force. Driving force, yeah. Yeah. And then they asked for global evaluations of each group. So their overall attitude towards each group on a Likert scale. So in terms of the results, the repeated measures ANOVA that they used showed that health vegetarians were rated the lowest by all groups. Uh, Ethical vegetarians evaluated the health vegetarians less favorably than the vegans when they were in the group with omnivores. Right. So in line with, with what they were thinking, that when ethical vegetarians were thinking about the mainstream group as well as vegans and health vegetarians, they aligned themselves more with the vegans and further away from the health vegetarians. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So So they kind of did that distancing. Ethical vegetarians saw themselves similar to vegans and distanced themselves from health. Yeah, who were kind of seen more like the omnivores. Right. Yeah. But that that distinction didn't happen when the omnivores weren't mentioned. Right. Yeah. And But against what they predicted, having that comparison with omnivores didn't impact the vegans' ratings. So they rated the ethical vegetarians more highly than health vegetarians in both conditions. Yeah. So it sort of didn't seem to to impact them having that reference to the omnivores. Okay. Yeah. So the authors wondered whether that it was about them not focusing on the motivation so much, but just going vegetarians are different from vegans. Yeah. It's not about why they're doing it. It's that... That we're different. We're different. In in style and substance or something. Yeah. And in behavior and everything, we're separate groups. Yeah. So I found it interesting because... I think when you're speaking, often when you're speaking to people, it's generally sort of people who are omnivores talking about people who are vegan or vegetarian or people who are vegan or vegetarian kind of going, I don't get why you don't give up meat. But it's rare for me personally to hear conversations between subgroups kind of talking about what they think about the other people's Mm, behavior. mm. I don't know if you've ever... I can't recall it. No. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's just social circles or... I mean, but the only thing I would think of is that you certainly hear vegetarians and vegans talk about, like, how good they are at being that. Mm, sort of how strict or how... How strict they yeah. are. There's a kind of a quest for purity. That yeah. I, that's my 
formulation around it. Yeah. But I don't sort of see them kind of going, oh, we're, vegetar- we're vegans and look at those vegetarians over there. No. You're far more likely to feel judgment from a vegan or judgment from a vegetarian for eating meat or something like that. Then that sort of within... Yeah, within group stuff. Yeah. Group. yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So I might go to my my paper on... Attitudes. Attitudes. Because I think it kind of ties in quite nicely. So, so the paper I've got is called "It Ain't Easy Eating Greens: <laughs> Evidence of Bias Towards Vegetarians and Vegans." Will you do the rest of this in Kermit's voice? <laughs> so, <laughs> evidence, pretty please. <laughs> published in Groups, Processes, and Intergroup Relations in 2017 by Cara McInnes and Gordon Hodson, and covers three studies. It's quite interesting, and we'll touch a little bit on what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So they discuss, start off with say, you know, there's a relatively small number of vegetarians, you know, about, they, they cite 5% in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, which is a similar amount to minor, other minorities like gays and Muslims. Mm-hmm. Increased attention towards this kind of, these kinds of diets, growth in popularity. And prominent people like Bill Clinton and Ellen DeGeneres have talked about these kinds of diets. So in, there's increased awareness of the health benefits uh, of these diets, or perhaps more correctly, there's increased awareness of the health disadvantages of a yeah. high meat diet, and uh, probably as well of the environmental. Yeah, there's certainly that aspects comes up. as well, and, and certainly I've read that you know there's a couple of justifications for why these studies were important because they were talking about you know the environment and the bigger picture and all this kind yeah. of stuff. You know, and then there's discussion about animal cruelty and things yeah. like that. I mean, I get the guess the reason I don't. Um, I'm wary about that is that I th- human history was we advanced as a species because we started eating meat. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so there's a an interesting relationship there. Mm. Anyway, but I don't want the to go. Protein and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't want to go into that. So, because um, I don't think I'm eloquent enough. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, they discuss that there's anecdotal evidence for bias towards veg- vegetarians and vegans and they cite a whole lot of single cases around that so somewhat comically they cite an american celebrity chef even remarked that vegetarians are the enemy of everything good and decent in the human spirit <laughs> which is kind of like it's funny to think about like because you know you, mm. know, you imagine a chef going you know yeah. what i can't eat use you know meat product and yeah. stuff like that so they wanted to look at prejudice in these groups in a similar kind of way to what you're talking about so like but basically these groups are relatively acceptable in society, mm-hmm. but they wanted to actually, you know, what's this prejudice? Yeah. Let's have a look at that. And wanted to look at theories about intergroup biases. So a little bit of theory, they talk about symbolic threats is one of the, the things. They're mm-hmm. talking about in West, Western society, vegetarians and vegans can represent threats to the status quo, given the cultural norm favoring meat eating. And so intergroup threat theory talks about symbolic threats are intangible threats to an in-group's beliefs, values, attitudes, or moral standards. And the out-group beliefs and values and attitudes, moral standards are in conflict with one owns group. And so an out-group perceived as undermining the cherished values of that Mm in-group. I mean, if you want to have a classic example of that, look at the political situation in the United States with the right-wing kind of, you know, deriding liberal elites. Yeah. So... These processes are are well known and well seen in in other groups, like so with blacks, gay men, lesbians, those kinds of things. So that 
if people perceive the outgroup as threatening, this has been shown consistently to predict negative attitudes towards that particular group. Mm-hmm. They talk about viewing vegans or vegetarians as an outgroup. And so if this is a case when you're the, the group that threatens the most will experience the most bias towards them. Yeah. Right? Kind of fairly simple idea. Theoretically, they found that those who endorse right-wing ideology, so politically conservative or like right-wing authoritarianism or have a social dominance orientation, which is like things like support for group dominance mm-hmm. kind of thing, like one group is more dominant than the other, that people with these kinds of traits are particularly susceptible to experiencing such threats and because they support the status quo mm. by definition and resist change. So they found that heightened conservatism, right-wing authoritarianism or social dominance orientation are associated with uh, heightened outgroup threat perceptions. And they identify that there's like a link between prejudice and these factors. So for example, right-wing authoritarianism, awful word, <laughs> is linked to prejudice towards an outgroup by the perception that that outgroup is threatening. So essentially that mm-hmm. there's a mediating link A to B to C, yeah. right? So they hypothesize that those higher right-wing ideology may express more negative attitudes towards vegans and vegetarians in large part due to the threat that these groups are seen to pose. And there is some evidence for that. Mm-hmm. They also talk about outgroup perceived as threatening because of their actions and behavior. So... Unlike gays or lesbians who might be perceived as threatening because they engage in a taboo mm-hmm. behavior, taboo sexual behavior, or immigrants speaking different languages or religious groups wearing other religious mm-hmm. symbols, they suggest vegans and vegetarians don't engage in anti-normative behavior, rather they fail to engage in normative behavior. So it's the absence rather than the presence of something yeah. different. and so they threaten in a unique way. And when you're threatened in a unique way, then you increase your possibility of being a target. Mm-hmm. Is so the theory goes. I, I'm a little bit not solely convinced by this because it's like, well, you know, if you're not speaking English, is that not, you know, you're failing to An engage absence. in a, a normative behavior. Yeah, if you're but, not in a but, heterosexual relationship, is that, yeah, yeah I yeah. get what you mean. Yeah, yeah but, sort of. but it, it was interesting theory. But perhaps it's that you've got an opposing behavior. Like you've got a, a different yeah. Behaviour rather than... But isn't vegan different to omnivore? You're eating the same base stuff. You're just then adding stuff for omnivore. Yeah. Or yeah. You... I mean, kind of where I was kind of like... I, I, was, I read it initially. I'm like, oh, okay. And then mm. I start thinking, like, mm. oh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Anyway, they talk about that other groups who fit it like are asexuals or atheists and they are generally... Mm. And they can be generally targeted by socially dominant groups. Although, I mean, mm. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought... In Australian society, I'm not sure atheists are particularly targeted. Not so much. So the research, they did three studies into whether vegetarians and vegans are targets of systemic bias. So they did two studies on omnivores and one on vegetarians and vegans. So I'll try and go through these quickly. Uh-huh. Study one, 278 Amazon workers uh-huh. in the United States. They had a whole list of questionnaires that I, th- that I think were done online. As predicted, attitudes towards vegetarians and vegans were equivalent to or more negative than evaluations of common prejudice target groups. So both vegetarians and vegans were evaluated equivalently to immigrants, asexuals, atheists, and significantly more negative than blacks. Vegetarians were evaluated 
equivalently to homosexuals, whereas vegans were evaluated more negatively to homosexuals. And strikingly, only drug addicts were, were evaluated more negatively than vegetarians or vegans. Wow. Quite stark. But in terms of discrimination, omnivores did not indicate any less willingness to hire or to rent to mm. vegetarians or vegans relative to other groups. So yeah. it sounded like there was negative attitudes but not a willingness to discriminate, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see whether that actually occurred in practice or not. But I wonder if it's about the social acceptability as well. Yeah. So this exaggerated bias towards vegetarians and vegans was displayed amongst prejudice prone persons so what what that means is that stronger right-wing ideology stronger gender bias in-group identification and perception of vegetarian veganism threat were associated with more negative attitudes towards both vegetarians and vegans lots of results from this so i won't go through them all but just a sample right-wing ideologies you know endorsing right-wing authoritarianism or social dominance orientation or conservatism was associated with a lower willingness to rent to a vegetarian. So there was lots of results with that. But right-wing ideology predicted vegetarianism and vegan threat and vegetarianism and vegan threat predicted a more negative evaluation of vegans and vegetarians. So this kind of... Okay, so that's sort of like, I feel threatened, so therefore I view you. Yeah. More negatively. Yeah. So, so really like this, so this right-wing ideology is related to negative evaluations of vegetarians and vegans and that relationship is mediated yeah. by whether they perceive a vegetarian or a veganism as a threat, mm-hmm. right? And what they found was that if not for being more threatened by vegetarianism or veganism, those higher in right-wing authoritarianism or conservatism would not express more negative attitudes towards vegetarians and vegans. So if you're a stats nerd, yeah. there was like full mediation of okay. the relationship, hmm. so which is quite strong. Vegans were evaluated more negatively than vegetarians. Greater bias towards vegetarian and vegan men versus vegetarian and vegan women. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that they seem to think that that might be to do with it's more acceptable for women. That kind of thing. Well, I actually, the article that we're going to next is about masculinity and yeah, vegan and vegetarianism. Yeah. So, so, come yeah, back to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that. I won't, yeah. I won't go on about it. Uh, yeah, vegan men were evaluated most negatively. Vegetarian men, yeah. vegetarian women and vegan men evaluated more favorably. So, study two, they wanted to understand this more. And they were interested in the evaluations of vegetarians and vegans as compared to other non-normative groups such as feminists mm-hmm. as well as motivations for being vegetarian or vegan. Mm-hmm. They looked at this bias according to this really great model, the stereotype content model. It's great because it's got this one of these things where they have two conditions with two conditions in it mm-hmm. each. So you get four different yeah. groups and it's like really, really nicely. So they talked about groups that are characterized by low warmth and low competence mm-hmm. are targets of feelings of contempt, disgust, anger and resentment. If the group is lo- is perceived as having low warmth and high competence, then there's like the feeling towards that group is envy and jealousy. Mm-hmm. The group is high warmth, low competence. There's like pity and sympathy, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like, oh, they're really, really lovely, but they're incompetent. Yeah. And high warmth, high competence, they're admired, mm. right? So they've got it all. Mm-hmm. So they assessed omnivores perceived warmth and competence of vegans and vegetarians along these lines. They didn't have a prediction about competence, but they did expect omnivores to rate 
vegetarians and vegans low in warmth. Yeah. With this idea of them being seen, as, um, omnivores seeing vegetarians and vegans as smug. Yeah. So seemingly superior and judgmental. Yeah. Which on face validity, like I've certainly Fits experienced what? I've certainly experienced that mm. and that kind of stuff. Now I'm not saying they are, but yeah. that I think, that, but it's, but, the, but these models are about the perception. About the sort of stereotype and perception. <laughs> yes. It's about yeah. the perception of the omnivore yeah. or the non-vegan or the non-vegetarian yeah. and what they perceive. And then that would actually drive their behavior, whether yeah. or not. That's true. Whether or not the vegans actually give it, give it two hoots about yeah. what anyone else eats. Right. Yeah. So 280 workers from Amazon, 10 minute survey. They found that vegans and vegetarians were rated more negative than omnivores, more negative than those eating gluten-free diets because of mm. celiac disease, mm-hmm. more negative than lactose intolerant, and more negative than veggie for religious reasons. Vegetarians and vegans viewed more positively than those eating gluten-free by choice. Mm-hmm. So this was a bit yeah. of a surprise finding. And so those eating gluten-free by choice was the group that was viewed most negatively, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Interesting. Um, and vegans were viewed worse than vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Vegans and vegetarians were viewed more negatively than environmentalists. Vegetarians were more viewed more positively than feminists. Mm-hmm. And vegans equal with feminists, which is kind of interesting that there's this like kind of rating yeah. of that kind of stuff. Omnivores viewed vegetarians and vegans more negatively when motivations concerned social justice than personal health. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting, like in yours, there yeah. was, the differentiation was... If it was for health reasons, they were viewed... Yeah, by vegans as... As kind of less less, good. But for omnivores, if you're vegetarian because of health or vegan because of health reasons, Mm. then you're viewed better than if you're doing it by ethics. Which is actually the same continuum. Yeah, it is actually, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it is. They're aligning themselves with the health vegetarians. Yeah. Yeah. And distancing themselves yeah, from the totally vegans. The yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that, I thought that was interesting. Mm. For the stereotype findings, uh, so they found that both vegetarians and vegans were considered lower in warmth than incompetence. Mm-hmm. So that would suggest they're targets of envious prejudice, So, which is that they're generally perceived as better off than others, mm-hmm. high status and hostile in intent. Mm. So which yeah, I, I, I could see omnivores feeling that way. Um, sort of fits with some of the discussions you hear around. Oh, totally. And so this is consistent with this perception that, you know, like vegetarians and vegans believe that they're better than others and stuff mm. like that, you know. And, and vegetarians view as more competent and warmer than vegans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting having done this reading and kind of examining my own reactions as I've read some yeah. of this stuff and kind of gone, oh, yeah, I probably feel... Do you have a- some of that. Feel that and this kind of implicit bias towards it. Yeah. When really it's just what someone chooses to eat and really does what does it matter? Yeah. And like if I have to cook someone a special meal, is that really how big a deal is that? Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So the key takeaway from study two was that the reason why someone abstains from eating meat appears to be relevant to the degree of prejudice they experience mm-hmm. by omnivores. Right. Study three. So mm. they wanted to do the reverse thing here. They wanted to see whether veg- vegetarians and vegans experience bias. Mm-hmm. What those experiences are like. Online survey targeted vegetarian vegan online groups, 371 participants, 91% North American, around 90% have been vegan or vegetarian for over a year. Mm-hmm. Results 
substantial proportion experienced negativity from others. A quarter of vegans reported decreased friend contact after revealing their veganism. One third had anxiety about revealing their diet. Over 40% and over 50% of vegetarian and vegans respectively experience some day-to-day, everyday discrimination and mentally prepare themselves for Hmm. potential discrimination. They found that through regression, vegans had more negative experiences than vegetarians. Hmm. And that would be reduced friend or family contact, greater anxiety, which was interesting given our anxiety results before. More vegans and vegetarians reported not being hired for a job because of it. Hmm. Although, I mean, I wonder why you would say it. Mention it. it. (laughs) So, if you are applying for a job, don't mention your diet, I think, or... Come in in eating a barn me, but (laughs) just put it down. They generally found little sex differences and and they had a theory that men would experience more discrimination, but they didn't seem to find that in this sample. The one finding was that men reported being unfairly denied a job or a promotion because of their diet, Mm -hmm. vegan or vegetarian. So really, the summary of this long paper... The bias is not widely considered a societal problem at this stage towards these groups. Mm-hmm. It's commonplace and it's widely acceptable. Like, and it is. Like, mm. I've heard it on, on the radio. I, I would have said it myself. Yeah. And I've laughed at other jokes and stuff like that. So, And on the stereotype, this envious prejudice may represent the recognition that vegans or vegetarians are, like, in inverted commas, right mm-hmm. not to exploit animals and in doing so demonstrate the restraint that many meat eaters are personally unwilling to attempt. Yeah. So I thought that was a really nice way of kind of finishing off. Very interesting. What do you find Hmm. interesting about it? Uh, I think that it mirrors what I've seen and heard. Yeah. But also I think it it taps into that, like the the flip side of envy being that kind of guilt or that kind of maybe I should, you know, cut back or whatever. It's that sort of... You know, maybe maybe I do eat a bit too much meat. Yeah. Exactly. That kind of acknowledging that your behavior might not be great, but you still do it. So going, hmm, why is it that? Yeah, like, and it's this interesting. Like kind of perception about changing your diet is hard. Yeah. Or that eating vegetarian is hard. I mean, yeah. I, I would probably say that eating vegan is hard. Yeah, I, I, I think I would struggle a lot more with that. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said before, don't eat a lot of meat, but... In terms of cutting out things like dairy and eggs, that's yeah. something that I would really struggle with. Yeah. That's, I think that's the thing that yeah, would really I mean, knock I mean, me. Like even <laughs> just not even just from a taste perspective, but from a like a, like if you want to cook a cake. Yeah. Like. Cook, practicality kind of. The, the, you know, yeah. like, you know, eggs are very helpful if you're cooking something like that. Yeah. Um, yes, you can do it other ways, but yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of convenience. Yeah. And yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Let's not get this sidetracked into All right. So, last one for me is called Are Vegans the Same as Vegetarians? The Effect of Diet on Perception. They're not. (laughs) They're not. You want to jump in there and say. Done. We'll go to my study. No. No, because we haven't talked about masculinity. Uh, The second part of that title. I'm feeling threatened. (laughs) You shouldn't. It's okay. The Effect of Diet on Perceptions of Masculinity by Margaret Thomas in Appetite in 2015. So, Is she famous by any? Because she's talking about about masculinity. (laughs) Listeners, I have my head in my hands. (laughs) So this article was beautifully written. Like it really told a story 
and got straight to the point, like set up the background and then got straight to the point with the results yeah. and really enjoyed reading it, like in terms of how it was set up and whatnot. It was really interesting. Anyway, the background kind of talks a lot about the cultural and social implications of diet. So that compared to other species, there are a whole lot of things that we associate with diet and eating behaviours. So that, for example, there's a whole lot of bias against eating good or versus bad mm. foods mm. so that people who are depicted eating good foods are rated higher on morality, fitness, attractiveness, likability and practicality. And there are similar effects if someone's depicted eating a meal that's lower in calories. Mm. So there's this kind of way that we view other people based on what they're eating at the time. Mm. This is sort of a direct expression of control. Mm. Absolutely. There's also that we view healthy eaters more positively overall, but we also view them as more serious and antisocial. Yeah. Which kind of fits with what you were talking about. And in terms of gender, a traditional view of masculinity is related to having a stronger association between eating meat and masculinity. Mm. So the more you endorse those kind of values, the more you think that eating meat is related to masculinity and so there's apparently research in australia on sort of social practices around eating meat so about like the importance of a barbecue yeah well yeah totally well the the community radio station that i listen to Mm. triple r if you're overseas you can listen to it on like it's rr.org.au and every year in the first weekend in december they have a concert and they have the MBO, the Melbourne Barbecue Orchestra, which is just like <laughs> their mates. Yeah. And then they change the lyrics to songs. <laughs> so it's all about barbecues. It's hilarious. Yep. Like yep. instead of Sunday, Bloody Sunday, yep. it's um, Sunday, Barbie Sunday. <laughs> with, the, with, the lyric, with the great lyric of, you know, how long, how long have these chops been on? <laughs> so, and, yeah, it's, it's important. Oh. Uh, Yeah, I could go on. It's really, really funny. And a whole bunch of stuff about how men who don't eat meat, where do they fit into that that narrative and to that social experience? And that kind of social bonding element of, you know, having a beer while you're cooking meat for your mates. Absolutely. And so that then not only is there that stronger association, that then more meat is consumed by men as well. And that then the reverse, that femininity is associated more with eating Chicken fruit, fish. veggies, <laughs> no, and sweet things. Yeah, right. And yeah. that these things are eaten more by women. Yeah. So it also talks about research on advertising, that often advertising is linked to like eating meat and physical activity or eating meat and women. So they link the con- sort of consumption of meat to the consumption of women. Right. Yeah. Okay. Just as a... <laughs> I'm not sure I follow, but I can be good. Well, you're looking at me really confused. Because <laughs> I am confused. Well, sort of like, like not so much as a sexualization of meat, but kind of like um, that eating meat is related to sort of obtaining women and having women find you more attractive and kind of consuming oh, women okay, in that yeah. way, not in terms of cannibalism. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, <laughs> like what, are we eating women now? I'm not sure that... Yeah, right. Yeah, that... that isn't a new thing. No. <laughs> no. Okay. But the, then there's also gender perceptions of the amount of food eaten. So women eating smaller amounts are perceived as more socially appealing and more feminine. And that people who eat smaller amounts are perceived as more feminine, mm. regardless of their gender. Mm-hmm. And that there's the reverse for larger amounts. 
So uh, this author talks about the argument that masculinity is about what is consumed and femininity is about what's not consumed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that in previous research, there's been varying results about the link between vegetarian and masculinity. So she wanted to kind of split that up a bit. Yeah. So to do that, there were four studies all conducted on the same Amazon workers thing. Yeah. The first one was to investigate gendered perceptions of vegetarians. So they had 31 participants and 74 were male. They were presented with a vignette that was identical in content across groups, except in one there was a male a protagonist, one female, one vegetarian, one omnivore. And it just it basically described sort of the person's day-to-day interests and mentioned that they enjoy eating meat or don't. And then they were asked to rate how much the person in the vignette possessed 12 different qualities. They found no significant results for ratings of masculinity based on the target's diet. So then in the second study, she wanted to build on that and include vegans and a larger sample size to see if that was the difference. So there were 236 participants, again online, 97 were male. The vignette was the same as in study one, but there was also the option of a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. They found no significant differences in masculinity. So she thought, okay, let's build on this again, but put the focus more on vegans. So the vignette was exactly the same. There was 133 participants, 89 male And what she found this time was that omnivores were rated as more masculine than vegans. Mm. And that when split by target gender, this remained significant for males but not females. So, yeah, so the male vegans were rated as less masculine, but there was no difference in the level of masculinity that people rated the female vegans or omnivores. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it was a specifically so, I mean, masculine yeah, yeah, I mean, so male phenomenon. Yeah, so you can rate men and women on both femininity and masculinity. Yeah. So like, just to kind of clarify that, but yeah. Yeah. So male vegans viewed as less masculine yeah. than omnivores? Than male omnivores. Yeah, male omnivores. Yeah, yeah. and that male targets, male males in the vignettes were rated as higher in masculinity by female participants regardless of their diet Mm. which she attributed to men not wanting to rate other men as high in masculinity the last study was to explore the mechanism of the effect found in the previous study so 146 online participants 74 male so the same procedure, the same vignette, but with an additional sentence added about the motivation for veganism. Yeah. So vegans... It gets back at this, this motivation thing that's been kept cropping up. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So vegans by necessity, so say if they had an allergy, yeah. were rated as higher in masculinity than vegans by choice. And then when split by gender, again, it only remained for males. So mm. the rating for females didn't change, but the rating for males maintain that pattern. So what does that mean? Sorry? So which means that male vegans uh, who choose to be vegans are yes. uh, rated lower in masculinity than male vegans yeah. who do so because of an allergy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. once again... It's perceived to be out of their control. Yeah. yeah. And once again, the women rated the men as higher mm. in masculinity than the men rated the men. Hmm. So it taps into a few things that we've talked about in terms of that kind of 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to think about well, what's femininity and what's masculinity, and like I guess you know, like my non-sophisticated way of understanding that would be that you know, masculinity is about the stereotype of a male, yeah, and the stereotype of a female for femininity. So I mean, I guess you know, if you're getting away from the stereotype, then it would make sense that you would then mm. be rated less than that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know as well about the about people's own like how they would rate their own masculinity and their mm. like whether that's actually whether not so much an external perception of masculinity but their own whether that's related. You certainly, I would say I certainly you feel like a man when you you cook up a lot of meat mm. and like well, you spend a lot of time at the barbecue. Yeah, and kind of do that. It's like kind of this like well we don't go and hunt our food anymore yeah but like there's something kind sort of, of the remnant of the primal yeah just <laughs> like I, I i've 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 burnt the meat on this <laughs> plate yeah um, yeah and look at me mm. so it's an interesting thing isn't and i it? think it's socially rewarded like we're like yeah. oh my god he's finally doing some cooking yeah. <laughs> like and he's, and he's doing it outside where i don't have to clean up but yeah and whether that changes as well as society shifts given that more traditional views of masculinity are related to more of that link. Yeah. Whether gender kind of conceptions are changing all the time, whether mm. there is, whether that will shift as well. Yeah. 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 That's mm. a fascinating little yeah. article. Yeah, really well, interesting. Big article. Yeah. So I've got a very quick one to finish off. I know we've been going for a while. This one's called IQ in Childhood and Vegetarianism in Adulthood. And mm. It's a 1970 British cohort study. So this was published in the British Medical Journal, BMJ, in 2007. So, And this is by Catherine Gale and colleagues. So they identify that there's a link between children who score higher intelligence tests and having lower risk of coronary heart disease in later life mm-hmm. and being able to adopt good health behaviours like not smoking yeah. or being better able at stopping smoking if they did start. Mm-hmm. So they suggest that vegetarianism is linked with health benefits, you know, like lower cholesterol, blood, lower blood pressure, better obesity, heart disease. Mm-hmm. So they were saying, well, could vegetarianism explain this link? Yeah. So they got, so this is 1970 British cohort study. So it was 17,198 live births in this particular period in April 1970. And at age 10 assessed, quote unquote, mental ability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the British ability Very scale, seventies term. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. You can definitely tell the na- the age of a of a test by yeah. like whether it's got mental or not in yeah. in the title. Um, so they talked about this is the British ability scales. It's not tests I'm familiar with. Four subscales: word definitions, word similarities, recall digits, and matrices. So mm-hmm. fairly standardish yeah. type. IQ intelligence tests. They calculated general cognitive ability score or G in Mm -hmm. inverted commas, which is the kind of classic way you would think about intelligence. And then they converted it into an IQ score, which I thought was Mm. kind of curious, but it's published in the BMJ. So, you know, yeah, it's fine. Um, (laughs) And so at age 30, they interviewed participants at home about their diet. Mm -hmm. They had uh, 8,170 who provided diet information and who also had IQ data. So oh, huge, huge. Sam- huge sample. And to do interviews with... I think it might have been part of a bigger study. Mm. They said that 4.5% were vegetarian, 366, and only 2.5% of those were vegan. Mm-hmm. So there's nine vegans. So it's 
not very many no. vegans in that age group. So vegetarians were more likely to be female, have non-manual occupation social class, higher academic or vocational qualifications. This higher socioeconomic status is not reflected in higher incomes. Mm. No difference between strict vegetarians and non-strict vegetarians on these kinds of uh, mm. indices. In terms of IQ, uh, vegetarians had a higher childhood IQ score than non-vegetarians. So the average of an IQ test is 100. Mm -hmm. So their converted score, males had 106.1 versus 100.6. So And for female, it was 104 to 99. So about right. five points difference. Yeah. And so the standard deviation of an IQ test is 15. Hmm. So five points is pretty... It's a pretty large yeah. difference. Mean IQ was lower in vegans, hmm. nearly 10 points lower than other vegetarians. But they did point out, you know, that's a it's probably, only it's, it's such a small nine. group. Yeah. Like, you know, you can have probably one or two and it would change yeah. that. So they did a multivariate analysis. The odds ratio for being vegetarian was 1.2 for one standard deviation increase in childhood IQ score. So you'd be 1.2 times more likely to be vegetarian one cent deviation increase in IQ score. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. My odds ratio information is uh, rusty. So they talk about that they're finding that children with great intelligence are more likely to report being vegetarian as adults, coupled with the evidence that on the potential benefits to cardiovascular health of vegetarian diet may explain this link of higher IQ in childhood and adolescence to a reduced risk of heart disease hmm. in adult life. They also say, well, alternatively, it's possible the link between childhood IQ and vegetarianism is not a causal chain of mechanisms related to health. People with higher IQ may well differ from those with less superior brain power. Many of their lifestyle decisions, mm -hmm. so, you know, choice of newspaper, type of books read, preferring form of entertainment. And so they're saying that the association between IQ and vegetarianism may merely be an example of many other lifestyle preferences that might be expected to vary with intelligence, but which may or may not have implications for health. Yeah. So, I mean, they're kind of, sort of saying, well, look, if they don't, really know yeah but nice kind of tight study no difference between strict and non-strict vegetarians which i thought was interesting. interesting yeah vegetarians in this cohort are on average more intelligent better educated and of higher occupational social class non-vegetarians mm -hmm. but these social economic advantages are not reflected in the yeah. income and so they were saying well you know maybe that could be to do with ethics yeah so, you know ethics of being a vegetarian yeah maybe more ethical so you're better educated but you don't you maybe you go into not-for-profit kind of yeah or like working in public health rather yeah. than privately or yeah. i don't know whatever it might be so mm. there you go interesting so i know that that was six articles yes so we'll take a quick break and we'll see you soon all right you're in choosing spot bye the beginning of the history of this is about a show where we say thanks for listening to the pod. Um, we do appreciate everyone continuing to listen to the pod. And for the first time, you can now tweet us. Yes. What, what's our, it's just, what's our just Twitter shrink, handle? Two Shrinks Pod. Two Shrinks Pod. Two Shrinks Pod. Couldn't be any simpler. So if we get a certain number of followers mm. by the next pod, yeah. or maybe... Then I will. I can put up pictures of the dead whale. <laughs> I feel like that's a very niche portion of our audience that wants to see that. Like maybe only N equals one. <laughs> well, and she's seen it. <laughs> let, let, let's find out. If, so if you 
don't want to see pictures of a dead whale when we're on a vegan and vegetarian oh. podcast. <laughs> 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 uh, send us an email. So, uh, no, no, like follow us, but then like tweet, tweet us. Tweet us. And say, please don't kill the whales. <laughs> I, no if, harpooning. If you don't, if you don't know what the whale story is, I was on a holiday. There was a dead whale on the beach because it was coastal Australia, and those things happen. And he took pictures and sent them. Yeah, well, I didn't capture the smell. <laughs> well, I feel like he did. Anyway, we're off topic. Off topic. You can also check out our website twoshrinkspod.com. And you can email us if you're not on the whole Twitter thing. And that's at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. But also the, the main thing we really like people to do is to review and rate the show if you can. Yes. I'm still waiting for Amazing Amy 77 to uh, I, I feel like that's the, cheating. It's not cheap. It's not cheating? It's not cheating to rate your own show. Really? Yeah. Mm. Email us and tell us. <laughs> if I get enough emails... <laughs> to make kill me <laughs> that's it, that's it. Uh, do you have any more no thank you for listening I think we did that in like maybe two takes that was great I mean it depends on how much you got to chop out the middle but sure <laughs> two strings pod welcome back to two shrinks pod the last bit of the show we like to chat about strange articles we've come across during the week things we came across I'm going to try and shorten that too T-W-C-A. And then if we ever get T-shirts. That, that will be it. That'll be it, yeah. Could we have like a portion of the T-shirt that we can write in the thing that we came across that week? Oh, excellent. Excellent. Know, I like right? the idea. Like blackboard paint or something. <laughs> That's it. Comes with, comes with like the, 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 the T-shirt will come with like a little finger, finger paint jar. Yeah, as long as it didn't encourage other people to write on us. Yeah. That'd, that'd be, be creepy. Awkward. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. what have you come across? You know how lately you've been putting an irritating children's movie song into my head by <laughs> singing it at me frequently? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I went looking for why we have this thing where we get songs stuck in our head. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I was thinking about that. Yeah. So I have an article called Earworms, in brackets, Stuck Song Syndrome, Towards a Natural History of Intrusive Thoughts by Beeman and Williams in the British Journal of Psychology in 2010. Yep. I'm fascinated with this. And I've thought about this often. And there's a great moment where I was overseas visiting a friend who was, Australian friend who was studying a master's in Sweden. I mm-hmm. think it was. I went to a conference in Turkey and all overseas listeners who aren't Australian will find this hilarious that I was in Turkey and because I was nearby to Sweden... I yeah. Visited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you were closer than yeah. we are to some parts of Australia. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, like um, her, my friend's Swedish boyfriend found that hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, so her friend, I was saying to her, I've got, I've like, I've got this song stuck in my head, and she's like, the way to get a song out of your head is to sing "Private Dancer" by Tina Turner. Which I still does that just replace it with? It kind, of, it kind of actually just like it somehow like counterbalances it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so this article is about those kind of, you know, songs stuck in your head. And it's one of the first pieces of research into this. It's sort of one of those phenomena that everybody has, but that no one's really looked into what's going on, whether everyone actually does have them, that sort of thing. So they conceptualize having a song stuck in your head as like another form of intrusive thought. 
So other ones might be mundane things. So like being asked not to think of a pink elephant and then all you can think about is a pink elephant. Mm. To distressing, so hallucinations, flashbacks, obsessive thoughts, that mm. sort of thing, mm. all along that same yeah. continuum. So it's, it's at the distressing <laughs> end for you. Yeah. It's a song from Zootopia if anyone is uh, interested in. <laughs> You're going to sing this when the no, recording stuff, aren't you? No, I'm not going to sing it. It's already in my head. It's... It's no point. So previous research has identified that a third of the population have an earworm every day and over 90% have at least one a week. Yeah. And it's disturbing for about 15%. That is, That seems low. It does. Uh, I guess I mean, you might have a good song. So can you yeah. So they did two studies. So the first study was a questionnaire with 103 participants and uh, it was sort of a convenience sample. Mm. And... They found that all of the respondents recognised the phenomena, with the majority reporting that it lasted for hours or longer. Absolutely. Yep. And that people who considered music to be important reported that it lasted longer and was more troubling. Yep. So they sort of saw a value in it. Mm. For about 5%, earworms interfered with their life, so their ability to do tasks, interact with other people, that Mm. sort of thing. And the interference with life was related to how worrying it was to have these experiences and how unpleasant it was for you guys. Mm, mm. So, so essentially, the more it bothers you, the, the more it's going to interfere mm, with day-to-day mm. life. And people who had them less frequently found them more interfering. So I suppose you kind of get used to, <laughs> get used to that <laughs> happening. Get used to Shakira. Um, <laughs> almost half had a different song each time it occurred, and there was a huge variety of songs reported. So they asked people to list yep. songs that they'd had, and there wasn't much overlap between people. Yeah. Which I found interesting because it kind of goes counter to that thing of like, oh, there are catchy songs versus not all catchy artists or that mm. sort of things. And they spanned all sorts of like jingles, children's songs, music across mm. a whole range of genres, mm. news themes, like all sorts of things. Yeah. 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 But I guess, I guess it could. There's so many things that could be catchy, and so many things that are written to be catchy. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. I, I feel the need to defend myself. Here, <laughs> it, the song is relating to my my son likes to listen to it. It's just an excuse, actually. I'm just favourite. <laughs> Absolutely. Of all time. <laughs> he really likes the message that's you know give everything a shot. I don't know. <laughs> No. Try everything. That's not a good message to tell people. No, no. Yeah. Not to five-year-olds. Like, don't do some things you shouldn't try. Cocaine. Okay. five, not good. Not good. So people reported multiple strategies to rid themselves of earworms. Yep. The most common was musical displacement. So what you're talking about. So either listening to another song, singing one in your head, mm-hmm. whatever. Some yep. sort of alternative yep. musical thing. Generalized displacement. So distracting yourself doing something else, that mm. sort of thing. Mm. Inactivity, so just like going to sleep <laughs> or doing nothing. Um, elaboration, which is one that I sometimes use, where you sort of expand your contact with that song. So you yeah. listen to it on repeat. Yeah, so I've been playing on the ukulele because it's yeah. been driving me insane. Yeah, exactly. So keeping on trying to do that. And then for a couple of people, drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I thought was great. (laughs) So then the second study was they got 25 people to complete diaries whenever they had uh, any earworm for a month. 
269 earworms were reported. Yeah. So an average of 1.12 a week associated with 199 different songs. So quite a lot of variability. Mm. Uh, Two-thirds of the time they didn't interfere with life or waste time and participants could act could name 99% of the songs that they experienced. So they were familiar, mm. familiar songs. About half were seen as pleasant, pleasant experiences. And then they used similar distractions, but in different orders. So on just over half of occasions, they didn't do anything to try and get rid of them. Mm. About 21% they used musical displacement. So singing something else, 12% that distracted themselves with other things elaborated 4% of the time and no one in this sample reported drinking. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's, I mean, it's given me some options of how to get rid of Shakira. Yeah. I mean, by talking about it, it's then come back into my head. See, so two weeks in a row, like you've talked about like food cravings and things get stuck on. Yep. And I'm very stuck at the moment. <laughs> It's not a metaphor for the thesis that needs to be handed in at all. No, it's uh, not a metaphor for anything. It just is. No, that's it. There's an interesting, there's a movie called Touching the Void. Have you ever seen that? Or no, but a, I feel like you might have told me. I might me. have told you. So it's a, it was a book and then it's a later movie, a fantastic movie. Uh, two British mountain climbers in the 80s climb a mountain in, in the Andes, I think it is, in South America. One of them at the top of this mountain breaks his leg. Yeah. And friend lowers him down the mountain. He falls into a crevasse. The friend thinks he's died, you know, climbs down the mountain. And then there's this story about how this guy climbs out of a crevasse and gets himself back to his mate. Amazing. Yeah. And like it just the most fascinating story and really, really worth um, watching the movie. And in it, he is, gets into this sort of delirious state towards the end of the ordeal and he has this uh, song by Boney M, hmm. um, Brown Girl in the Ring. And he's like, he's like, in the movie, he's like recounting this to the camera and then like, they've got an actor playing him. Yeah. And like, and he's saying like, he just, he, he said he couldn't get this song out of his head. And he's like, he's like, I'm not even a Boney M fan. Like, <laughs> it's just in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the way that they, the way that they, portray this in the film you, you could see just how like it would have been so irritating yeah um so yeah, yeah it was really really interesting fascinating <laughs> so, um mm, yeah. yeah so there you go so we still don't know why but nope. we know that it happens and to pretty much everyone yeah but there's, everyone. No, there's no reason as to not, i don't know yet so that was the first study that had been done into sort of the strategies people use and <laughs> how often it happens and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that was 2010. So it's pretty new of the people sort of looking yeah, at it. Because yeah, right. I suppose it's not something that often interferes with functioning. So for psychology, then that goes lower on the research pile than stuff that... Yeah, well, it's probably harder to write a grant for. Yeah, exactly. So um, the... <laughs> so my one feels remarkably morbid. Cool. So I was uh, chatting to a professor... Uh, at uh, Swimmer Uni today, hmm. we were talking somehow we got onto the topic of like intern effect, and it was actually called the July effect, which is, um, and, and he didn't know about it, so I wanted to see whether I'd heard about this thing, and I but I never actually read anything about it, so I wanted to try and find it. So this is a paper by Timothy Wen and uh, colleagues, 
and it's the July effect analysis of never events in a nationwide inpatient sample. Mm -hmm. So the simultaneous arrival of new residents, medical students, and Mm. faculty in July each year in the United States results in a complex transition period for hospitals. Medical centres strive to deliver high-quality efficient care whilst undergoing these these changes Mm -hmm. with over 100,000 interns and residents in the United States taking part in this changeover. Wow. And so this period's hypothesized to hold an increased risk of adverse outcomes referred to as the July effect. Mm-hmm. So basically, you get a whole lot of new doctors yeah. with less experience yeah. and mortality rates and incidents go up is, yeah. is the idea. So it'd be a different month for Australia. Yeah, it'd be a different month for Australia. I, I don't know what it would be. What, January maybe. Studies have... So I, and so it's quite... I mean, it's quite morbid but i always i always find these kinds of things quite interesting definitely as a behaviorist i guess so there have been some studies that reported associated increases in mortality risk decreases in efficiency and an increase in undesirable events during this time but that occurrences are still debated Mm -hmm. so this study is that they looked at a national view of this and they looked at hospital acquired complications now i'm not medical so I'm probably going to screw something up, so any doctors listening... Keep it vague. Sorry, you can email me at twoshingspod.com, zenchimo.com or Twitter. So hospital-acquired complications characterises ischiogenic adverse outcomes that are deemed preventable and egregious. So essentially you're talking like mistakes, hospital-based mistakes that... Yeah, like complications like retained foreign body, blood incompetence, Incompatibility, catheter-associated yeah. UTI, wrong medication, that sort U- of stuff. urinary tract infections, hot, like falls, things yeah. that uh, should be preventable. Yeah, is is is, is what I'm guessing, yeah. or like what I'm getting from this paper. So this is published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, um, mm-hmm. 2015. So they wanted to look at this. They did it in this massive sample of data from the covered. Inpatient admissions from 2008 to 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was 143 million inpatient admissions wow. in that time in this database. And 4.7 inpatient admissions had occurred at least one of these events. Mm-hmm. And what they found was... 4.1 million? Uh, no, 4. 4.7%. A 4.7%, okay. Yeah. So 4.7% of admissions. Mm-hmm. So that's 6.7 million. Uh, so, and they found that July admits had a higher overall frequency of these occurrences compared to non-July admissions. So that was 4.9 to 4.7. Mm-hmm. So there was a July effect. There was marginal differences between hospital and patient factors associated with admissions in July. So, I mean, so you could potentially, like, if you get all holistic people in July. Yeah. And things start happening but they seem to think it, there was actually a july effect uh and then they looked at this with multivariate stuff and they actually seem to think that that july and august yep weren't different from each other whereas july was different from every other month okay so they, they then re-ran the analyses and found that there was a seven percent increased likelihood of these occurrences in july or august emissions compared to all other months hmm so they were talking about this in that July to August is like a spillover finding indicating that the learning curve of inexperienced and new hospital staff is like longer and mm-hmm. and so that it's not limited to one month. Yeah. It was interesting because I was saying, well, you know, this 
data is concordant with other studies that demonstrate a positive July effect or mortality and efficiency. But so some studies have noticed worsened outcomes in July, but results have been mixed and several studies, studies of subspecialities or local database suggest no clear increase. So I think it's a bit complicated, hmm. that kind of stuff. But they were sort of saying, well, you know, these adverse events that they looked at were postulated to be more reflective of errors in systems and processes within the healthcare delivery institution rather yeah. than sort of population, yeah. patient based. Yeah, with such a large sample. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and they also looked, there was this little bit where they looked at surgical patients noted to have a 2% increase of these events in July versus 9% in medical patients. Okay. Now, I mean, so medical being kind of non-surgical yeah. people. So if you're you know, admitted under general medicine or something yeah. like that. So, and then so they were saying, well, maybe surgical candidates, are, like to have surgery, you'll be screened mm. more tightly for... Um, a whole range of other whole issues range of other that might interview, like yeah. Because like, to undergo surgery was like, you might actually be more unwell yeah. in... In under general medicine. Yeah. So, yeah, so... <laughs> so avoiding elective surgery in July really probably won't help you that much. No, but no. like avoiding getting sick and going to hospital in July in the United States, probably maybe July Which August. seems tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Hmm. Got to learn somehow as a doctor. Yeah, I suppose so. I wonder what the differences in rates of ad- admissions across the year would be like whether there's any seasonal mm, I would look surely stuff be. because it's that's what their summer yeah my mind immediately goes to um ed research on self-harm and things and that's worse in the summer yeah but i don't know about other populations <laughs> it's a very niche <laughs> portion fairly <laughs> fairly unique yes kind of stuff. Mm, interesting yeah interesting i don't know why i find that stuff interesting but I, it's like that, I don't know, hospitals are an organism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and not a perfectly functioning, oh, seamless. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. Despite uh, how I think everyone would like to think that everything will go fine. <laughs> yes. Good enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's us for this week. We will see you next time. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. See you later. Yeah.